You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. To my right, Max Linsky of Long Form. To my left, Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. Hey, you guys. Hello. We have a really great show. Uh, we got? This is, um, this is going to be one of those deep divey kind of episodes where we go in uh, pretty deep on one story, and that story is a story that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for explanatory reporting. It's called An Unbelievable Story of Rape. It's a joint project by T. Christian Miller from ProPublica and Ken Armstrong from The Marshall Project. It's a very unusual uh, process, a very unusual set of circumstances that came together for the story, and it ended up being a huge success, and they were very open about how they did it. They were both working on the story independently. Correct. And then joined forces. Yes. Very, very unusual. Uh, that, that 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 people would even consider doing that, I think. Yeah, totally. This is uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, we got a sponsor, Aaron. Mailchimp. That's the one. Simply the best way to send email. No question about it. And now here's Aaron with T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong. Welcome, Ken Armstrong and T. Christian Miller. You guys are, I think, the first uh, people who've been on the show who are not from the same uh, publication. So tell me, tell me about uh, where you both write. So I write for ProPublica, which is a nonprofit investigative news outlet. Yes. And I write for The Marshall Project, which is, which is also a nonprofit news outlet. Uh, we're based in New York, and we cover criminal justice. I've followed both both projects for a while, and I have to say that I'm not surprised that there was an overlap in what you're doing. But it is pretty unusual, I think, for two reporters from different publications to partner on a story. So um, the story that you published, what, what, what is the title of the story? An Unbelievable Story of Rape? Yep, An Unbelievable Story um, of Rape. Which won the Pulitzer Prize this year and probably other prizes that I failed to write down in my notes. So... I'm I'm interested in sort of going back to like, how did this buddy cop uh, movie get going? Like how 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 did how did you come to work with each other on this story? You want to take it? Sure, I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll from the top. So I had been working for ProPublica doing stories about sexual assault, and the stories were focusing on what the police hadn't done in different cases to kind of showcase police failures and in the investigation of rape. As part of that story, a prosecutor had told me, hey, you should go look at this great case in Colorado. 
It was an amazing um, detective mm-hmm. chased by these by these several detectives. So I started reporting that story and called some of the detectives in Colorado and had talked to one of them. Uh, and I worked my way back to this was a case involving a serial rapist, and I worked my way back to one of the earlier victims. And I called and, and the, her attorney, and, and the attorney said, "Well, I don't know why you're working on this. There's another reporter who's been working on this for like months and months and months." And my my heart stopped right then. You know, it's like. Usually in the old days, that was a signal that you was called hear you heard you heard footsteps. Yeah. So I was hearing footsteps, and usually would jam in the paper. So I asked the attorney, I was like, well, "Who is it? It's the Marshall Project, which is weird in and of itself because the Marshall Project, like us, was based here in New York." And I was going to say, how many nonprofit journalists? There's only like three or four <laughs> exactly. of them. Exactly. <laughs> <Right. Possibly. laughs> uh, and then I said, "Well, who's the reporter?" And it's Ken Armstrong. Yeah. who I had known professionally and followed his byline for years. And so then I knew that you had, like, the best of the best working on this. I was nervous. When you're, when you're dealing with, with uh, a case like this that's not necessarily, like, a hot national story, you don't expect that someone else might be on it. No, and, and in fact, that's why it's almost more stomach-churning when you find out that someone else is on it because – you realize they've probably invested a lot of time, too. They're yeah. pretty far along the way. And the normal uh, sort of mainstream media response usually has been, well, we'll just jam it in the paper as soon as you can to beat the other guy. Right, right. And did you know, Ken, did you know that you had a counterpart who was who was finding out that you were on the story also? I only found out after T found out. And oh. the way I found out is I received an email from my boss, Bill Keller, and the first sentence of the email was, oh, shit, <laughs> which is never a good first sentence for an email, yeah. maybe for a short story, but yeah. not for an email. And Bill found out from T's editor that T was working on the same story that I had been working on for months. So ProPublica found out first, and then word was passed along to me. And then I had the same gut punch moment, (laughs) realizing, because you're right, this is not the kind of story where you anticipated competition. This was about a sexual assault that occurred in 2008. And T and I are both working on this story seven years later. The odds of that happening are are pretty long. They're so long. It's a large country. So (laughs) weird, right? Uh, So yeah, it was a a complete uh, surprise. And then, um, but I had uh, part of what ProPublica and the Marshall Project we both do is we both work with other media partners. Right. And I've been doing this since uh, 2008 and have kind of drunk the collaboration Kool-Aid. And so really uh, my thought was, oh, well, maybe we can work together on this. So I called my editor, Joe Sexton, and here's where we get in, into some of sort of the, the interesting parts, the background parts of it is that Joe Sexton is my editor. He's a former New York Times editor. Former guest on the show. Former guest on the show. He had worked for uh, Bill Keller. Yes. And so Bill Keller. Future guest on the show. <laughs> future guest on the show. <laughs> so Bill Keller and Joe Sexton um, both uh, had worked together, were friends, but had that same competitive instinct that the Times breeds into all of its uh, reporters, which is to go head to head and screw each other, if at all possible. Right. Um, Which seems strange in the world of nonprofit journalism. It does. That there, that there, that there would be a, a competitive angle. You're not competing for, like, advertising dollars yeah. or... Funding dollars. Funding dollars. Yeah, Funding dollars. I guess it's true. I mean, it's not like um, the nonprofit nature of, like, scientific grants is, like, erased competition in the world of science or yeah. anything. Far from it. It's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's something that you always worry about is doing something that somebody else already has done. But in this case, uh, it didn't really take that much time to convince uh, everybody to kind of agree 
that this made sense. Yeah. You know, that it made sense to work together on this story. And some of that is kind of the personalities involved, but some of that too is just how the, the all the stuff that was the right fell into place in the right way. I mean, Ken had started uh, on in Washington State. I started in Colorado State. Ken's reporting was the beginning um, of the story. Mine was kind of at the end of the story. We all knew each other professionally. We all kind of come from the same culture professionally. And so, um, you know, I, I, I it was an idea that quickly uh, took took root, and, and I don't think anybody really had a, a lot of pushback to it. No, I, Bill thought I might balk at it. You know, because I had spent probably at least half a year on the story at that point, and he thought there might be some resistance to to sharing it. Yeah. But I came at it from the opposite thought. You know, I had done more work on this particular story than T had because of the work I was doing in Washington. But T had done more work than I had on sexual investigations in general. You know, yeah. because of the projects that he had done earlier in the year. So he had expertise in all of these procedural issues and in historical contextual issues that I didn't have. So even though it was a, a shotgun marriage, it was a really good shotgun marriage. It, it worked for for everyone. So when you're when you're tasked with covering sexual assaults and the way that those are cases are handled and you zero in on a story like this, what are you looking for in the abstract in a story when, when that's what you're covering as, as your focus? Uh, that's a really good question because of how it kind of exp it, it's explains a little bit about the of the importance of sort of following the story that you you find. So the, the way that I started the year is my editor, Joe Sexton had wanted to look at the NFL uh, and its treatment of women because they have their own issues. <clears throat> and so he'd seen a lot of coverage of this guy named Darren Sharper, a former Saints player, who had been arrested for raping nine women in uh, five different states. And he kind of wanted to know, well, was the NFL involved at all in, in covering this up or hiding previous issues? Because all of the rapes that occurred after Sharper had retired. Mm -hmm. So uh, myself and another colleague, Ryan Gabrielson, began researching that. We filed public records requests everywhere this guy had lived. We didn't find any really evidence at all to back up the thesis about the NFL being involved at all. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but there was certainly no evidence that, that we could find. But I think the, that there's just a presumption of guilt on the part uh, of the NFL. I don't know. Pro I have no presumption. They <laughs> I don't really know. Because uh, we really found no... It was yeah. interesting. We found like literally nothing that would back that up. It's the first but, positive thing I've heard about that. About the NFL on this podcast. Long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but what did emerge in, that re in the reporting of it is that the police in any one of these agencies could have stopped Darren Sharper much... Uh, more quickly if they had only paid attention to the stories of the women who uh, came in and reported their rapes to the police. And it was such kind of a one of those, I guess, like an outsider looking in and realizing, gosh, I mean, all, all they the cops had, could have done is like called where the guy lived before, those cops, and they would have said, oh, yeah, we've got a case like that, too, because each of the cases had very similar fact patterns. And so that got me started on, like, are there common sense solutions that mm. police departments could use to help improve rape investigations because a sexual assault has been a huge issue in this country now for, for many, many years. And we've seen it covered sort of topically in terms of um, sexual assault on campus and the military. And this, I thought the, the way that ProPublica had an insert on this was to say, how can it, what, what a solution, what kind of impact can we have on that? And so this is a long way to answer your question, which is that I didn't have an idea coming into the story. Mm. I found the story in the reporting that I did. And that's really what drew it forward. When that prosecutor said, 
hey, there's a story you really ought to look at. Like, what what were the qualities of this story that that prosecutor was saying, this is, this is one that would be valuable for T? And this isn't ultimately, again, not the story we told completely, but uh, her insight was that this particular guy, Mark O'Leary, who was a serial rapist who's at work here, had been sentenced to 327 years in, in prison. There's a team of detectives, four detectives total, two of whom were the lead detectives were two, two females detectives. Uh, and they had gone through all sorts of incredible investigative techniques to track this guy down. And so as a prosecutor, she had been impressed by their work. And then when I started to take a look at the case, just the very basics of the case, I've covered police and crime on and off in a 25-year career. So I can, I think I have a sense of when I see mm-hmm. really good police work. And I was impressed by it and wowed by it. Uh, so that's how I kind of came into the story, knowing only very tangentially uh, about what had happened earlier in in the case. Oh, interesting, because it's inter- I mean, in some ways, your experience of the case, in the li- the, the way the the um, narrative is pre- presented linear- linearly, is sort of backwards. Like, hmm. you you started with the perpetrator and right. worked your way back to the victim, who right. who in many ways becomes the protagonist of, of the story. What was your lens on the story when when you got involved with it, Ken? Well, you know, T was looking at an investigation that went right. And I was looking at an investigation that went wrong, right? Because T's concentrating on the detective work in Colorado, and I'm looking at what happened in Washington. I live in Seattle, so you know I was aware of news reports of a young woman who had been raped and wasn't believed and was charged with filing a false police report. And what I wanted to know was how did that happen? So my goal was to reconstruct the police investigation that went off the rails to figure out where did the doubt start? How did the doubt spread? How is it that police mishandled this um, this investigation in, in such an almost unthinkable way? The other thing I wanted was to hear Marie's voice in all of the accounts that had been published up to that point. She had never been interviewed. She had never agreed to be interviewed. And what I was hoping was that with the passage of time, she might be ready and willing to talk about it now. And it took about seven months of emails and phone calls, but she eventually did agree to be interviewed, uh, to her great credit. Mm -hmm. And the reason she did was that she became convinced that by sharing her story, she could help others. You know, she might be able to correct some misconceptions we have about how people should or will react once they've been hurt. So she just saw value in sharing her story. As a a reporter, when when you have a subject like that who's um, been through a, a traumatic incident and you know if I get this person to talk about this, this would improve my story, but what it would do to their life is more of an open question. How do you pursue, you know, once once you have those stakes sort of uh, laid out and you know that she hasn't spoken previously, how do you represent your intentions um, in asking for an interview? Well, when I approach under circumstances like that, I, I really work hard to be patient and respectful and to offer to answer questions before I ask any. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times if people don't have familiarity with the media, they really don't understand where it is we're coming from, how it is we go about our work. So they're often in a position where they may say no just because they're scared, just because they don't know what it is that you do. So the emails that I sent to Marie through her attorney 
really erred on the side of sharing too much information. I, I told her about myself, about the Marshall Project, about This American Life, uh, who we were partnering with at that point. Um, she wanted to know about journalism and impact. You know, like she wanted to see examples of how reporting had had an impact on public policy or practices or whatever the case might be. So I gave her examples from my past and from This American Life. And then we talked on the phone, you know, so we were able to communicate at considerable length before I ever sat down across from her with a notebook or with a tape recorder. And I think that helped a great deal. Was when you're when you're sort of talking about the impact from that kind of a stuff, do you also discuss the impact on the person who, who agrees to the interview? I mean, what were the stakes for her life to, to come forward and, and talk about this? Well, what she had to decide was whether or not she wanted to be identified by her full formal name and by where she lives presently. And she didn't. So we were using her legal middle name. Mm -hmm. Marie is her middle name, but she doesn't go by that. Yeah. And we also did not disclose where she lives now. Yeah. So that that made the story different. Of course, who knows what the Internet will do whenever you publish something? Will the Internet behave? Yes. Will the Internet try to out someone who would rather not be identified? In this case, we didn't suffer any of those ramifications. And you know, one of the things that T and I are happiest about is that Marie does not regret participating in this. The, the reasons that she wanted to tell her story have all come to pass. You know, the things that she hoped to get from this, she's gotten. So as you both started um, uh, cutting the distance between yourselves on the story and, and approaching the same point, did you divvy up the labor? Did you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, you know, I'm at the courthouse, you're in the rental car? Um, like, how does something like that work on the ground? Well, it's because this was a three-way partnership with This American Life, Robin Semyon was a producer who, who produced a segment for This American Life with Ken. We would often actually do three-person interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, so Robin would come in. She would set up um, her equipment. Uh, Ken and I would have questions prepared. Ken was the um, the narrator, the, the sort of lead, lead reporter on This American Life. Um, so it was kind of my job to pay attention to little details that a print reporter might not would want, but maybe, maybe wouldn't be good for radio. You know, small, sort yeah. of colorful, atmospheric details. Um, Ken would have kind of a Ken and Rob would have had to sketch, sketch out a big sort of list of questions that would be good for radio, um, and then we would sort of uh, arrange our dance card in that way. Mm. We didn't; uh, th those are for the big interviews. There were certainly interviews where I would go and talk to people by phone only, and Ken did the same thing. Um, Ken did uh, Ken and Rob did a lot of the interviews in, in Washington. Yeah, um, we all went out in one big happy family uh, rental set of rental cars out to um, North. Eastern Colorado, where Mark O'Leary was um, is in prison, we went to Colorado and interviewed. Did a lot of those interviews together. Um, so I can't say it was the most efficient process in news gathering, but I think it was the most effective. I didn't realize that that all of the audio reporting was done in real time with the textual reporting. It, it was. You know, it, it's funny though. Is like that wasn't efficient, but there are other parts that were. I I, I won't forget this. When T and I talked on the phone and agreed that we were going to work on this together, 
NFT created um, a Google Drive site, and we just decided that we would both dump all of our documents in it. And I remember seeing all of the records that you had gathered in Colorado, and then I dumped all the records that I had gathered in Washington, and it was like each of us had half of a phenomenal story. Yeah. And in one day, by dumping our notes into a common file, we suddenly had a whole story. What's it like seeing, I mean, you're seeing inside an investigation while you yourselves are in some ways conducting an investigation. Do you compare yourself to the detectives? And you know, how different are the techniques for investigating a, a crime like this as, as a police officer versus a reporter? I think that it depends upon the detective and the reporter. Yeah. Um, in this instance, T and I both came to this story with an open mind. You know, and you and T describes where he came to it from. He wanted to know how the investigation went right in Colorado, and me, I just wanted to know, you know, how, how did it go off the rails in Washington? But we didn't have a thesis that we were trying to prove up. Mm. And I think that for reporters and detectives, where you get in trouble is when you let those preconceptions or, or when you're convinced you know how the story will end before you've actually started telling it or right. researching it. And when you look at, you know, Detective Galbraith in this case, she was, you know, the detective in Golden, Colorado. I think she probably approaches her work in much the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, her whole approach is listen and verify. Yeah. It's not judge and prove. Yeah. And I think that from a reporting perspective, we're the same way. Go in with an open mind and then go where the story takes you. Yeah. What were, I mean, from where you were when you merged those half of the documents and you had a whole, what were the major holes for you in the story? What was the stuff that you didn't have that you felt like you had to have to be able to publish this stuff? One of the little miracles of the story is that uh, when we went to go write the story, we didn't write it together. Like, Ken went off and he wrote his segments of the story and I went off and wrote my segments of the story. And it's very kinetic, interlocking narrative. And we talked all the time, constantly, every day, probably more than we did with our wives at that point in time. Uh, but um, I was still, personally, I was going to think, oh, so Ken's going to send over his files and we're going to mash them together and what's it yeah. going to look like? I have no idea. So he literally sent over, so my first look ever was at a, I don't know, 5,000 word segment that, that I just kind of like mechanically plugged into my 5,000 word segment. And then that was the first time both of us had the chance to kind of sit back and, and read what happened. And it was really remarkable how well it, it fit together. And I, I think that's, again, us talking, us coming from a common sort of language of newspapering and, and reporting and writing. Um, but there was also just some serendipity about it that it just worked out uh, really well. Hey, I want to pause things here briefly to give you a word from Squarespace. They are our sponsor today, and I am enthusiastic about what they do. Why am I enthusiastic? Well, I used to put up little websites for people, and they were always pissed off and unhappy about them. When I pass them off to Squarespace, strangely, they're quite happy with them. What kind of websites? Uh, all kinds of websites. Uh, just a landing page, maybe a portfolio photo gallery, something for a new small business you're starting. Regardless, Squarespace has you covered with beautiful templates, 
a drag and drop interface that means you don't need to know any code, 24 seven customer support, and my favorite part, a free custom domain when you sign up for a year. Yes, a free custom domain. So get yourself a new website, a new domain to host it at, and do this all at squarespace.com slash longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase and you'll be supporting this show. Thanks, Squarespace. Our next sponsor is Trunk Club. Let me tell you about Trunk Club. Uh, I needed a new summer wardrobe. I needed some shorts, some light summer shirts, something to keep me cool. And I don't really like to go to a department store and spend a whole day sweating in a weird little room trying on outfits. And then when I get home, I realize I don't really like them. There's a better way to do it. And that's with Trunk Club. They assign you a personal stylist. This is a human being, not a robot. This is a human being who picks out great clothes for you. They send them to you. You keep the ones you like. Send back the ones you don't. It's not a subscription service. There's no obligation. You have 10 days to try them on. It's totally risk-free. I recommend you give it a shot today by going to trunkclub.com slash longform. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com slash longform. They'll hook you up with a personal stylist and you can look great at your next summer party. Thank you, Trunk Club. When I look at the success of this piece and it's really been very successful in terms of all of the places it's gone, the awards it's won. You know, there's a lot of criminal justice reporting uh, in America. I think it's probably the, one of the biggest topics in this election cycle. There's a lot of people pursuing stories. And one of the reasons I think this story really resonated with people is that in addition to being a really interesting story about the criminal justice system, it's a great detective story also. It's thrilling. I felt like I was uh, in a movie while I was reading parts of it. And there's always, a, for me, a sort of uncomfortable dance with uh, the genre, I guess, that, that is true crime, where you feel a little bad almost for enjoying yourself reading it. And I, and I can feel that tension sometimes with writers where this is a great story. I'm a writer. You know, I want to excite people. And then there's this sort of a flip side. So I'm interested in how you balance that in, in a story and whether in the editing process you end up sort of taking in and out things that give it that cinematic detail and, and, and make it, I mean, fun, I guess, is the word I would use to describe it. It's actually a, a pretty fun to read a detective story, even if it's about a terrible sexual assault. Well, you know, the story was 12,000 words. And if we had written it as an expose instead of as a story, that, as, as you're saying, you know, it had layers of reveal. It had rewards along the way. Yeah. If we had written that as a top-down expose with bullet points about what we found, I don't think too many readers would have made it to the 12,000th word. No. Um, so when T and I first thought about this, well, we were using a structure that came from Joe Sexton uh, at ProPublica. He came up with the story's architecture. And once we saw how... Like he just he just like sent you guys like here's the here's the structure for your story. Yeah, it was the it was the damnedest thing because T and I came up with a structure on our own as we said we were, we went to a hamburger restaurant in Manhattan where I think the hamburgers were twenty two dollars each. One, one of you know, only in Manhattan. Borgie, <laughs> right? And, and on a napkin we sketched out a structure for it, and and ours also um, had layers of reveal, you know, and it also was a a pretty ambitious structure where we were juxtaposing Washington and Colorado. We went in and talked about this with Joe and Bill, our editors, 
and we got sign off on it. We were all in New York at the time. All and signed off, everybody. Everybody signed off, so that sounds yeah. good. Awesome. And everybody went home that night, or T's case, in my case, to various hotels. And I was gonna fly back to Seattle the next day, and I got a call from T saying that Joe Sexton wanted to have another meeting before I left for the airport. So it's like, sure. So Joe and T came back to the Marshall Project's offices, and Joe had an alternate version for the story, very well mapped out, that apparently came to him the night before, or maybe he had been mulling it for many days. But I, I keep referring it to it as a fever dream, because yeah. I can't think of how else you know he would have come up with that. But he gave us his idea chapter by chapter, and it was his idea to preserve um, the final description of the sexual assault for the very end. And when he described how it would have more power at that point, I, I just, I think we both understood immediately that he was right and that that was the way to go. And it's, it's, it's just a different um, approach when you're writing to an editor structure because you're not gonna have as much negotiation and fighting on the back end, right? Yeah. Because it's his structure, right? It's like, yeah. well, we did what you asked. Now, T and I tweaked it as we went along and we, and we had different entry points and exits for various chapters as we yeah. went along. But that basic idea of here's where we're gonna reveal this mm. and here's where we're gonna reveal that. And on the Washington side, we're gonna jump around in time. On the Colorado side, we're gonna tell it chronologically. And here's how we're gonna stitch it together. That all came from Joe. Um, but we did struggle with what you're describing because in particular, that final scene, you yeah. know, when, when Marie is, is assaulted, um, we struggled with how much detail to include there. Mm. We had two different versions for that final chapter. One where we basically left Mark O'Leary in the doorway um, of her bedroom and we did not describe what happens once he goes into the room. And then we had the one that we used, and we talked at length about the merits of each, and based largely upon the input we received from, from various women readers and from Marie, we went with the, the version that we selected where we described what happened in that bedroom, but without a lot of gratuitous detail. Right. You know, it was very spare. Um, what, when that, that description comes around, I think part of what made it read like, like, you know, like, I don't know why I keep saying a cable show, but a cable show to me is you have these details like early in the story, her driver's license is inexplicably left on the windowsill. And you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, I don't know why they exactly they needed to put that one in there, but okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, like that's, you know, one of 19 details. And then in that final scene, we come to understand the significance of the driver's license. And in some ways it's, Sort of the most horrific detail um, is this element of the story in which the victims are filmed in this sort of quasi future extortion scheme, or not extort, or a blackmail scheme. I, I wonder, you know, a detail like that, um, including it early, were you thinking like a lot about like where the reader is at like an earlier part of the story and sort of their preconceptions of, about where the story is going? We were. We were we were very conscious of the different hooks that we were putting in the water. And and we wanted to make sure that when the readers got deep in the story, they had all the information they need where they could make the connections, you know, for themselves. 
Um, and it helped that T and I were writing separately because we could read one another almost as a cold reader and see if there were missed opportunities or if there was some clue or element that needed to be inserted in the story earlier on. So I think T and I both served as, as each other's first reader um, in that sense. You know, one of the things that was unusual about this piece was that there was no lead writer. And often if you have two people writing a story together, you're going to have different styles, different voices, and it's going to be jarring. That didn't happen in this case. And when I look back on it, maybe I'm giving too much thought to this, but T's writing style is different from mine, but not dramatically so. I think T is a more descriptive writer than I am. He also has more adrenaline in his writing. You're going to find more short, punchy sentences. And that writing style worked beautifully for the Colorado component because it's a chase. So if I'm reading a chase scene and I'm getting a lot of adrenaline-fueled copy and a lot of description, it feels very cinematic. The Washington section was more meditative. It was a study in doubt. It was a story about relationships. And my writing style tends to be more spare. Um, I tend to have longer quotes um, where you can hear people thinking through a question. And I think my writing style suited the Washington component. And I wish I could tell you that this was all done by design, but it was really just dumb luck. Well, it was partly, you remember we, we initially had discussed, we initially discussed like, okay, the, the police section should be should be like a true crime novel more, and the Marie section should be more introspective and have some... Also, because of the practicality of the matter is the cop scenes were very well described because you had public records and notes, and so right. it wasn't like we had to like interview, re-interview people over and over again, getting all those details. A lot of them were in the actual public records, uh, whereas Ken had to deal with... Uh, a couple handful of subjects, kind of their memories, sort of remembering what was happening. And so he wasn't, didn't have as much to play with, I guess, as, as I did. But I do think that the two styles actually were, were sort of nicely differentiated in the fact that they don't sound totally different, but yet they're, they're different enough so that the reader will pick up on, on the tone shift. The other thing I wanted to say about the sort of the true crime thing, which is, is indeed a tension you always have, is one thing that um, if you is notable about the story is how little there is of Mark O'Leary in the story because right. O'Leary and his background tends to be uh, not to put too fine a point on it sort of Hannibal Lecterish. He's a very chilling, remorseless. Um, there's a lot of horrible detail uh, about his background and his life and what he did. And ultimately, we didn't. I mean, if you were writing, uh, you know. A, a true crime novel, yeah. you would put all that stuff in there. But, sure. we, but we decided, jointly decided, that this story was not really about Mark O'Leary. Uh, it was about the police and their investigation, and it was about Marie. And so we were judicious in when we entered details of him into the story, because it could have been much more. He would have overwhelmed the story right. as a freak show kind of a character. Well, there was almost, I mean, there was almost a different story that I almost, I wanted to ask you about this, actually, although it's kind of only tangentially related to what either of you were actually interested in this story is that O'Leary, it seems like, um, I guess through his experience in the military and being sort of a methodical person, um, sort of exploits the shortcomings of law enforcement. He knows that people don't really share information. I mean, in some ways, what you were trying to sort of expose at a criminal justice level was something that he had implicitly picked up on and used as a tool for crime. 
when you have like a lead like that, is that is that hard not to like, oh, I want to chase that one too? Like that that could be a twelve thousand word story about criminals getting smarter. It it did have that feel a little bit. I mean, what was odd about it is, as T mentioned, three of us went to a prison in Colorado and interviewed Mark O'Leary, and we got three hours with him. Yet he's not quoted in the story. I think his uh, brother might have been the say more on the story than he does. <laughs> and on the This American Life version, he his voice does not appear a single time, and. It's pretty odd because that was a difficult get. T worked really hard to get that interview. And yet we pretty much left it on the editing room floor. We used some of the information he provided for that final scene. So it informed the writing, but we didn't give him a platform. You know, we didn't give him an opportunity to, to basically plead for understanding or forgiveness because it would have really diverted the story. It would have taken us in a different direction. And I'm actually happy that we made that decision, though I can't remember yeah, did you a more know that difficult and chilling interview. Uh, no, um, some, right? We I don't think we ever put in a lot from him. Uh, we wrote a lot of notes. Yeah. I, mean, I wrote a lot of notes about him, but I don't think we ever had a, a great deal uh, about him in the story, the biggest chunk of the story that was actually taken out editing was kind of a courtroom scene where he there's a sort of like you know the more of a typical courtroom scene of what was what was happening. Um, but it, it was not like we wouldn't we wouldn't have included him. I wasn't another thing as reporters we would have if we were writing a different story about serial killers and what they're yeah. like. Yes, he would have been. I would have had no problem uh, writing more about him. But ultimately, like Ken said, it was uh, he just didn't fit the story, and that's maybe something that we didn't fully realize until. We had written the story out, and it was already 12,000 words, and and it was a very complete feeling. Um, and so I, I don't think any of us felt the need to put in more gruesome details or more sort of background about where this guy came from. Uh, it just wasn't part of this story. And that's, again, you know, my little journalism thing here is that, you know, uh, I, a lot of people don't realize that you will interview t- four people or five people or ten people, and only one or two people make it in the story. Uh, and this was one of those cases where we, there was far more people that were actually interviewed and talked to, to but they, they all informed the story. So, so now that the story is out in the world and, and it's being read really widely, I assume now, um, what are you hearing back from sort of the, the worlds of criminal justice and sexual assault reform that, that you were studying for, for, for a while? Uh, the response has been surprisingly uh, positive. I, I can't think of a lot of negative response we've had like so law enforcement really appreciated mm-hmm. that we made again this was this was Ken made a really effort to get the police in Washington who had made the mistake in the first place to get that voice in the story and to let them have their say um, I think police often feel unfairly treated by the media and their story isn't fully told and Ken and I were uh, keenly interested in making sure that we gave every opportunity possible for them to have their voice in the story. And it really didn't come together until the last uh, the last weekend. And that actually was the one time we split up duties where Ken, had, Ken and Robin had four or five interviews, I think, in a weekend. And I was sort of – the story was in, was in bed and I was making little changes and yeah. he was fil- filing in little takes. And um, that's when we had actually split up duties to make sure the story actually got published. <laughs> Um, but that that's what ended up happening, and it it 
it did give them that that voice that they could they could you know be heard. So law enforcement has appreciated the effort we made there, um, and the sexual community of people who are sexual assault uh, survivors. Um, we've heard sort of a lot of moving stories about how people uh, made them reflect on their own experiences. Um, it's being taught now at, uh, in some sort of training seminars, both in police training seminars and in sexual assault seminars. We just heard that uh, you know there's an incoming class of students at Columbia Journalism School who are going to read this story. So it's 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 difficult for a skeptical person like myself to kind of appreciate that that um, that people really did take a lot out of this story and then continues to have a life even now, which has been many months after the the publication, that people still find something there to, co to go back to, because journalism is almost by its nature really evanescent. Yeah. And this is a piece that, for whatever reason, has some, some staying power. Does Has the um, the radio show had a different life than, than the report, reported piece? I, I think so. You know, This American Life has such a large audience yeah. that I think the print story, the print version of this story, I know that at the Marshall Project, it had a wider readership than any story that we'd had. Is, is the same? That's the same, same I think. ProPublica. Same ProPublica, yeah. Yeah, and even with that, I mean, I know that we were probably between one and two million readers between our two websites, but This American Life routinely reaches twice that number. You yeah. know, they're between three and four million. And that's not even counting on the, you know, weird... Canadian backwoods station. <laughs> that's right. Playing at 3 a.m. while you're that's right. Now. Right. And, and I think that the the radio version was uh, it, it had a more visceral reaction. You know, there you are hearing the voices of the police detective who made the mistake. You're hearing the voices of the two foster mothers who, to their great regret, didn't believe Marie's story. You're you're hearing Marie's voice, and. You know, if you're just basing it on what you read online, on social media, the way a lot of people described it was that the radio version was in a lot of ways more of a gut punch um, because of hearing those voices and in particular hearing Marie and what she went through. And then at the very end of the radio story, when you hear the police detective talking about how this shattered him and how it made him wonder if he should even still be in law enforcement, his remorse is so sincere. You listen to that, and that is a voice you don't often hear. Like when T was saying how a lot of police departments don't address their mistakes. This was the opposite of that. They owned their mistake. They talked openly about it, and they talked about how it has affected their culture and their practices and how different it is now. And when you hear Shannon, one of the foster moms, talk about how this almost broke her and how she took Marie out into the woods and, and apologized to her personally, her remorse is so genuine. Um, so I, I think that they people reacted to the two stories differently just because of the way the, the two media work. Yeah, that's part of it. Was, I mean, was there ever a point where the needs of creating this as an audio story and the needs of creating your own story ran into conflict with each other? Oh, the, the, the greatest challenge in this is that with radio, when they interview someone, they want it to be the first time the person has heard the questions. And T and I are reaching out to people who may talk to us only on the phone. If we're lucky enough to get them on the phone, every impulse as a print reporter is, ask your questions now. Get every bit of information <laughs> right, right. that you can now. Don't 
schedule an interview for later. Ask them now. And with radio, they don't want to do that. They don't want the interview to sound rehearsed. They want it to be candid and spontaneous. So for me, that was the biggest challenge was just having faith in the process. And even when I got a hold of people and they agreed to do an interview later, just holding back, not asking them the questions that I was dying to ask them because I didn't have a microphone, you know, in front of me at the time. That to me was the, the, the biggest challenge in trying to coordinate the two. The other is that when you're doing an interview for radio, you want the people to tell stories. You know, a lot of times when T and I are interviewing people, we'll have questions where we're really trying to get specific bits of information to fill in a scene or to, just to answer whatever questions we have. With radio, it's also open-ended. They want people to narrate moments from beginning to end. So there were, there were compromises done here along the ways, but I think it worked. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, done, uh, I've done a couple of these now. And it does take some training by all parties and some some give on all, on all parties. So if you have like a limited time, like an hour with somebody, you just got to divide it up and say, all right, radio, you're going to go for 30 mm. minutes. And then the print guy's got to get in there 30 minutes and you're not going to have an ideal version of either. We were lucky and that didn't occur very much. People were very uh, gracious with their time. Uh, in this story, so that that wasn't an issue, but w it was definitely a planned thing. Where, like I said, you needed to go in and and ask the, the kind of questions that radio wanted to have asked, which doesn't necessarily they don't always necessarily make sense to somebody from a print background. Um, and the same thing with uh, radio reporter and print, like, okay, what kind of flavor ice cream were you eating then? You know, um, those kind of details don't really make make sense in that direction either. Uh, so it is a period of of learning that, um, just some basic radio behavior. You know, you don't want to cut off the question. You don't want to jump in ahead of time. Um, you, but you learn those things, uh, and you get better at them. Yeah, this was the first time I had done radio like this. So for me, there was a steep learning curve. And this was a one-hour episode of This American Life. So that's a very ambitious undertaking yeah. for them. Which they, um, uh, they only do, I think, usually one or two a season. I mean, yes. this, yeah, this is blowout. Yeah, yeah they, they really committed to this story um, early on. But, you know, as T was saying, you know, it's like one of the things in radio is you let the silences linger. In print, you wouldn't necessarily do that. But I remember asking the lead detective in Linwood a question about, do, do you think of Marie often? And 29 seconds passed, which is an eternity of time. And nobody in the room said anything because he was trying to collect himself. You know, it was a, a question that he had a very emotional reaction to. And eventually he got up and left the room and the commander was with him and said, you know, you're gonna have to give him a little bit of time to, to, to collect. Um, but in print, I can't imagine letting a silence sit there for half a minute. Well, you let a silence sit there if, if you were just kind of trying to let the guy talk, but it wouldn't be part of the production value. That's right. I mean, like the print story would be like, you know, what would be the point of saying, and then he waited for 29 seconds, right? <laughs> you wouldn't do that. But in radio, that's a very powerful and effective moment. That pause in and of itself can be that, or that, that sound of the chair scraping as he gets up. So you can't, you know, there are things that radio does great, and there's yeah. things that print uh, do well, and they don't always overlap. And that's why um, they there's a lot of sort of uh, 
ability to tell two different stories in two different ways and still feels fresh because of the mediums themselves and what they have. Do you end up envying the radio? I mean, I just kind of imagine hearing someone pause for 29 seconds and then walk out of the room. You're like, ah, oh, I'm not going to be able to get something that good. That's that's way better than writing about this. <laughs> no, I would say I say no because I say, but I can do, I can write this story that ends with, then they found her the license plate on her stomach. And that's just a, which you cannot get in radio. You know, you can sort of do things in, in the print um, that uh, are powerful in a print's uh, context. Right. So they really do. I mean, I, I have worked um, pretty extensively now in both television, documentary, news, and print. And I've come to really appreciate the powers of each medium and, and to be very sort of mocking now of the idea of a single multimedia journalist who can, you know, take video and do audio and do a good print story. They're really each its own form, uh, and you have to be a master of those form and be particularly good. And I, and I can tell, working now with a great radio person or a great television person, like you see how they think and you see how they put together a scene. And, and I, I have make no bones about it. I can't. I don't see that right. way. I don't hear that way. And I'm so very respectful of that. I found myself envying that that emotional response that I was describing, you know, that visceral reaction that a lot of people had. The other thing that they do differently from us, which I was worried about at first, was they work collectively. In the final week before that story aired, um, everybody is sitting around a long table together with one shared Google document, writing through the story together. So you've got Ira Glass here, you've got four or five producers in the room, I'm in the room, and everybody is throwing out ideas and everybody has access to this document and they're making changes. As a print reporter, that sounds terrifying. Right? You know, the idea that <laughs> someone, seven someone. or eight people at the same time are going to have their hands on the keyboard. Yeah. And, you know, I think they wound up using Google Doc version 15 for the story. But watching how well they worked with each other and how collaborative the whole process was, was really eye-opening to me. And I found myself thinking, boy, it really works. Now, I don't know if that's because... It's radio, or it's because it's This American Life. Yeah, as you say, you're watching the uh, best radio team in the world. That's right. There. <laughs> and, and the other thing they do is they work with new people like me regularly. So they're accustomed to dealing with people who don't have the first clue about sound or how to mix yeah. sound. Yeah, what was their, and, like, rap to you, like, when, when you first came in? <laughs> well, when I'm talking, you know, when, I'm, when they're recording me, um, Robin is acting as director, right? So... As a reporter, I have never before had a director, you know, who's saying, okay, here's how you say this sentence. Here's where the inflection should be. You know, you want to go up on this. You want to go down. You want to hit this word hard. This is like a two-dot pause. This would be a three-dot pause. These are all things I've never thought about before. And I really enjoyed it. And and the, the thing that was memorable about it to me was that I did not struggle with the long sentences, you know, that had different clauses. And you would think that those would be the difficult ones. I struggled with the short sentences. And at the very end of it, we were ending the story with a five-word sentence, and each of the five words was one syllable, and I could not say it right. I tried <laughs> over and over and over again, and I was always putting the emphasis on the wrong word, or my voice was going up, she'd be going down. And they eventually just scrapped it. And I thought, how hopeless can you be <laughs> when you cannot say a five-word sentence with five syllables? The original Absolutely. concept for this show was that we would have writers on, and then they would read 
their stories so you'll be able to listen as a pipe that that uh that idea got, <laughs> got, got canned first, first. first time we tried uh, that was uh, right. i mean you find out how much artistry there is in any of the other mediums there is a lot of artistry that i don't think print reporters um give enough credit to like i, I did a documentary uh on firestone and the warlord with uh, marcella gaviri and marty smith um in frontline and um it was the same experience like they tried to get me to to narrate part of the film, and I, I was I was terrible. And they eventually had to bring in Will Lyman, who's a, you know the the voice of God and all the. And you know, <laughs> I'm never ever ever going to be Will Lyman. Not going to happen. Uh, and I have a lot of more appreciation now uh, for as much as you know as great uh, great teaching as I got on that project. Uh, there's some skill sets that are just not there, and but that are really powerful. And really make us a, a film come alive, or make a make an audio piece come alive. The way they use music, mm-hmm. you know, not just as section breaks, but for emotional resonance, was amazing. And then they found a story. I mean, a song at the very end of the story that could not have been more on point. You know, that beyond a shadow of a doubt, mm-hmm. it was just this gorgeous song. And the first time I heard it was when I actually heard the entire show. So I had the same experience as other listeners, and I, I just remember thinking, you know, you're right, artistry is the right word. I it's remember, pretty amazing what they're able to do. I was working with uh, NPR, uh, Daniel's Wordling, and, and uh, they do those little little play the filler music in. You know, there, there's just some guy who's sitting there who's been listening to music all day and has got like five-second little bits of music from all over the world, this huge CD that just like plops in live. There's like 20 million people listening or whatever, and he's got like five seconds, and it's just an amazing, amazing skill. Just that. Well, it seems like a uh, gracious and uh, optimistic place <laughs> to end and that both of you seem to really enjoy radio. So uh, yeah. thank you very much um, for coming in. Where can we find your work? ProPublica.com, MarshallProject.com? Mar- the Marshall Project. The Marshall Project. Yes. It's ProPublica.org. Org. We're, or, we're all, we're all hey, non- non-profit. Hey, we're, right. we're, we're, we're <laughs> right. org. It's all a .org party. And that was the long-form podcast. Thank you very much to T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong for coming in. Thank you to our editor this week, Barry Finkel. My co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our intern, Courtney Harrell. Our sponsors, Squarespace and Trunk Club. And last but not least, thanks to MailChimp. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, 
wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.